This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Holly Kamisa, Associate Director of Communications for Arc Street Press, and I'll be your host today. Today our guests are Jen Anderson, COO and co-founder of the Reset Foundation, and Jane Mitchell, CEO and co-founder. The Reset Foundation is comprised of campuses that serve as an alternative for young adults sentenced to the dehumanizing environment of prison. In the fall of 2014, Reset opened their pilot campus in the Bay Area. Their current students, young people ages 18 to 24, are working toward high school diplomas, professional success, and overall positivity and relationship building. Jen Anderson graduated magna cum laude from Brigham Young University, where she studied organizational behavior. She later earned an MBA from Harvard Business School. Jen is a 2013 Open Society Black Male Achievement Fellow, as is Jane. The fellowship is for individuals who are dedicated to improving the life outcomes of black men and boys in the United States. Jane Mitchell attended Stanford as an undergrad, where she originally planned to work overseas. She has worked in correctional facilities coordinating prison education programs across the country and taught in California, Utah, and New York City's Rikers Island. Jane and Jane, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. So did you have any childhood experiences or exposure to the injustices of the prison system that led you to your roles today? I guess I did a little bit. So I grew up um, with a father that was a political scientist, um, and he, my dad's an academic. So we often, our dinner conversations were often centered around some world issue, whether it was um, the state of the Middle East or water shortages or whatever it be. So one night I remember I was probably 12, 11 or 12, and the, the dinner conversation was about the prison system. And I had grown up in what I would say fairly sheltered circumstances. And so this was new to me um, that there were people in my country in neighborhoods close to me that were being sentenced to prison for X, Y, Z crime. And that prison was a terrible place. And it seemed to me the opposite of justice. And they were violent and dehumanizing and people would be there for a long time. And then, you know, upon their release would be, left at a bus stop at 3 a.m. with 20 bucks, and, and that was it. And that that was costing our country tens of thousands of dollars to do this thing that was really failing on any aspect. So I left from my chair and wrote the congressman and told everyone in my family that they were, you know, silly academics and why wouldn't they make a change in the world? So <laughs> um, nothing came out of that in the short term except uh, an angry world. Um, but then, and then it wasn't until maybe like my... Um, college and, and graduate that I started to get back into the issue and, and that was sort of what I met Jane. Yeah, and I um, so this is Jane. I um, I don't think I've actually, I don't think I really had a lot of exposure um, in my early growing up years to this issue. I had, I was born in Wisconsin then we moved to, to Europe where I grew up and was very blessed with the opportunity to travel quite a bit. We went to Asia and the Middle East and Africa and so I had seen very upfront um, 
issue, you know, issues that the world faces, civil war, poverty, um, you know, really, really entrenched poverty. A lot of my classmates when we were living in France and Belgium were Kosovo refugees or had just, you know, escaped what was happening in the in the early 90s in Bosnia. And so I was very familiar, I think, with a lot of other sides and, and bigger, broader issues going on in the world. And um, criminal justice was something that I actually never thought about or even had heard of as an issue um, until going to college. And um, I think that's probably why it had been so appalling to me when I did start hearing in, in the San Francisco County jails as a freshman um, at Stanford that, that I, hadn't, I hadn't really known anything about it. And here the issues were um, just as bad in some ways as, as everything else I had seen growing up, and, and, but nobody was talking about it. I had had a, a cousin or two that had been sent to prison, and so I did hear about, I did hear about that. Um, it wasn't a major turning point for me on this issue. I had heard about how, just how tragic it was for his parents um, have him go and then have him come back and be in a worse situation than when he left. And, um, and actually that was prison for, for my cousin was a, was a, um, a turning point in his life because things just kind of got worse from there. Um, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was something that, that really deeply affected me, um, because I was overseas and wasn't as close to it. How did your education and your time in college come to shape your investment in changing the prison system? So this is Jane. I, like I mentioned, when I was a freshman, um, one of my classmates was started to go tutor in San Francisco County jails, and our teacher made an announcement in class saying that, "Hey, Cammy Lee would love somebody to go join with, you know, go with her." And so I was like, "Oh, sure, why not?" Um, and it was really for me in college and, and through those experiences that I saw firsthand how, how intergenerational uh, this issue is and how tragic um, and avoidable as well it is. And um, so I tutored. I also ended up taking time off from Stanford to go teach in a county jail and just spend more time with the issue and uh, couldn't get over how how sad it was that we as Americans are doing this and locking people up and it's not just one person at a time that we're locking up we're really locking up the potential for generations and I had um, I had more than I had multiple actually multiple sets of parent and child in my classroom in jail at the same time um, who are there for for different crimes and you just saw how it affected entire families um, and that people went to prison as a rite of passage in some cases that I think I had, you know, grown up with the mentality that, oh, bad people go to prison and you go there and you realize, actually, we're locking up poor communities of color. That's what's happening. Yeah, I um, my college experience was amazingly helpful, though, not maybe the most not related to justice necessarily. But I feel like my college and graduate school experience was all about real world experience. Sometimes people talk about academics being maybe more, I don't know, distanced from the real world or at sort of the ivory tower or the this and that. And for me, I was able to use that opportunity to like learn how organizations ran. And I got involved in a, a really workforce organization as an undergrad that was doing um, entrepreneurship training and microloans to, um, to immigrants to the U.S. 
And that was just an amazing experience, both to see the power of a good job and the power of entrepreneurship and the power of a paycheck, but also to learn what an effective organization is and how it runs and how to get things done and, and manage a budget and, and all of these things. So I feel like um, you know, that was my undergrad and then graduate school was a continuation of that, but also just a, um, you know, an opportunity to expand sort of my network and knowledge of the world such that when we did decide to go and do this thing, we had people to call and people to see and, you know, kind of a platform to get started. What kind of work did you pursue after school and how did that lead to your roles now? So I, um, so like I said, during undergrad, I helped run this uh, organization and then actually went into philanthropy after undergrad. So um, a place called New Profit Venture Philanthropy Firm that gives um, growth capital to organizations that are scaling. And um, was involved mostly with a fund that actually looked at the sort of 16 to 24-year-old age group between education and workforce and alternative pathways. So that was, that was my first exposure to that type of work as well as the fundraising and the foundation world. After that, I went to business school and during uh, business school also worked today. Um, a small consulting firm that consults inner city businesses, um, you know, job growth and, and economic development, things like that. So, um, and then we started Reset partway through um, business school. And for me, uh, like I mentioned, I took time off while I was an undergrad to go teach, which was a great experience. And coming back from that, I really decided that I wanted to make this, you know, my career and the issue that I focused on. And um, my senior year of college had the idea for Reset, and I had been brainstorming for a long time how you could how you could get people out of poverty in a um, in a in a real way, not just not just some of the Band-Aid programs, but how could you really really address this? And I had come to the conclusion that that criminal justice was really um, impairing a lot of the issues, and that by changing people's experience in the criminal justice system, you could really affect um, families and and their trajectories for generations. Um, and so I applied to law school and very deliberately for the purpose of, of starting Reset. And I actually, in my admissions essay to law school, I said, I want to start this. And I'm sure they rolled their eyes on the admissions committee. And, um, and then throughout grad school, looked for opportunities that would help me um, to start this, basically. So I uh, had the chance to, to work with the Department of Education out in New York City they have a district, District 79, that focuses specifically on programs for, they're called alternative programs. So um, for disconnected youth or maybe kids that are at Rikers or in drug treatment centers, any kind of education in an alternative setting. Um, extremely valuable, really opened my eyes. Um, great, just, just great experience. Um, and from that, then had the chance to Helped me on the founding team of um, the Rhodes Charter High Schools, which are um, there's two charter schools in New York City that serve overage, undercredited youth. And again, a really great opportunity to see um, what it's like to actually start a school and what that process involves and all the many different moving pieces. And and especially how to design a program for a population that was very similar, um, albeit a little bit different, but still still very similar to the one that that um, we would serve at Reset. And then after grad school, I, I um, went and practiced law 
um, at Kay Scholler and very deliberately chose a department that I knew would give me the legal skills to be able to, um, that I would need for reset. And um, the corporate department was, was great. There was a lot of, um, we did a lot of negotiating and deals and mergers. And in some sense, reset is a massive merger between, between the prison system and education. And it was great to learn um, all about, all about the legalities behind that. How did you two first meet and realize that you had the same mission that you wanted to pursue together? <laughs> so, so my first grade, my best friend from first grade was Jane's roommate sort of just after law school, after mm-hmm. law school. And um, they were living in New York. I was in Boston at the time. And I came for a weekend to visit my friend, showed up at 10 p.m. Karaoke together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I showed up at like 9 or 10 p.m. And my friend wasn't home, my friend Jamie. Um, and Jane was there, who I'd never met. And I had just flown in from an, a consulting interview because when you're an MBA, that's what you do is you interview at these like large consulting firms. And it was awful. The interview was just like, they sort of looked at me and were like, ugh. And I sort of looked at them and was like, ugh. It just was like <laughs> not the right, <laughs> the right fit. So I came home sort of in a, in a soapbox mood and <laughs> I met Jane and we, just started talking, and I, at one point during the conversation, expressed frustration at corporate America, and all I wanted to do was fix prison. <laughs> she sort of pauses and leans back, and kind of her eyes twinkle. Funny, <laughs> like, I've been working on this project for five years. Anyway, Jane was really uh, an inspiration to me. So that's kind of how we met and recognized our mutual um, interest, and then we had a couple of conversations between for the next like nine months maybe, and then at some point you emailed me and was like, "So I'm gonna I'm gonna like quit my job and start this." And how do you, do you want to help? <laughs> yeah. So we um, I think the the Equine Green application was a great impetus for that. I was um had decided to to leave the firm and start doing this. Recognized that there were all these skill sets that I didn't have in order to make something happen. To Jen's point earlier about knowing how to actually run an organization and and all the finances and and the fundraising behind it and get something off the ground, I just saw that my net, my skill set and Jen's skill set were really complementary. I just had fun around her. We had complementary networks. It really seemed like oh gosh, this this could be an amazing partnership. And um, Echo and Green has this fellowship for people that are starting social ventures or social entrepreneurship projects and they have a partnership option. And so I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe Jen could do this with us. So, um, and, uh, yeah, she, she said yes. <laughs> so it worked out. It's really interesting to hear you talk about balancing the sort of work that each one of you does and can contribute. And I wonder how your different backgrounds help with the foundation and what skills you each bring. Um, I think it has been an un- uncanny, like a really remarkable um, partnership, I think, in terms of both how we work and what we bring to the table. Uh, my background is obviously like in education and in law. Um, I'm much more of a, a vision person, big picture. Um, I really enjoy the government work. I really enjoy, you know, a lot of the legal stuff, the property stuff, Um designing the program, figuring that out. And then Jen, like, knows how to make things happen and understood that, oh, wait, no, Jane, you need money to do this. Like, you have to have a financial model and and um, in order to make this sustainable and really have it change the system in the way that you want to. And, um, and 
also, you know, brings the business background and the, and the knowledge of the, of the philanthropic world. Um, I think too, just our working styles have been great for the organization. Jen is like, I mean, I'm an attorney and Jen went to HBS, right? <laughs> like she gets these do- things done. She's just like, okay, let's go do this. Like now we should have done that yesterday. And I'm like, let's think about it. Like, what is the other side? Let's be deliberate. <laughs> let's be cautious. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, uh, been annoying to each other at different times, but I think it's been really good. And we've both been able to see, like, looking back, that that's been what our organization has needed. Um, also, Jane's really short and I'm really tall. So <laughs> <laughs> um, neither of us are real deep content experts. You know, I, I would not say that I'm qualified to be, a, you know, a really strong teacher coach to design the very perfect model for this. I don't, I don't have that experience, but I care a lot about academic and I have had experience in that and am very familiar with the language and, and some of the great programs out there. And similarly, I have also um, done some work on the, on the wellness side, the social-emotional side of things, mental health. I think those are kind of um, the two programmatic areas that I have most experience um, and interest in. And the, the career compo- component of our RESET program, RESET has these, these three main programmatic areas, education, career, and wellness. The career side I knew was really important, but I just like had zero experience on it. And, you know, it was like, yeah, they need a job, but I don't know. I don't really know that world very well. And sure enough, of any issue that Jen knew and, and cared about, it was careers and getting these guys jobs and how you make that happen when they have a record and, and partnering well and all that. So I think programmatically it also worked really great. Um, we've since hired people that are experts and much more expert than, than both of us in all three of those areas. But I think especially initially, it was really great to build that out on paper and make sure that we had, you know, that we were covering our bases and had the strongest program we could. How has your experience been as women serving a male community? <laughs> oh, it's much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> there are white women coming yeah. from, from class backgrounds, you know, that have the the Open Society Black Male Achievement Fellowship. And we talked about this a lot early on. I think it's been... I mean, it's been good and bad. I think the the good thing is that so many, is it sort of, it's an eyebrow raiser. People are like, huh, wait, what's your background? And and wait, what are you doing? And it's sort of, you know, this is an issue that's been around for 60 years and never fully been addressed. And there's been people working on it and then a bunch of people who are ignorant about it. And I think we come from worlds generally where people are ignorant about it. And so, we often see ourselves as bridge builders between the people that, you know, really know how to fix the problem, people that, you know, are, are working towards the problem, people that know a lot about it, and people that, you know, don't, but are in the general public or can be funders or can be facilitators. And so um, we're like kind of translators and bridge builders between um, between those groups. I think also, though, like, it can't just be us. You know, mm-hmm. Jane mentioned we, we don't know a lot of the stuff that recent needs to be good at. And so it's sort of our prerogative and essential for us to to bring people on the team to bring people in our community that that are from the community that we're serving that understand that community better than we do and that we can sort of be bridge builders for each other what are some challenges that you faced getting the foundation starting how have you overcome them (laughs) how long was this podcast supposed to be yeah if you've (laughs) overcome them (laughs) um yeah, wow. Well, I'll start with a couple and okay. you chime in a couple. <laughs> and you can pick which ones you want to share. Um, 
I mean, one, to be honest, um, is we're not only so we're trying to start something that has sort of the three strikes against it. One, it's in criminal justice. And there hasn't been a lot of big momentum funding attention towards criminal justice reform until like just recently. And even still, the philanthropic community's been um, like slower to catch on to that. So two, um, we're a new, we're a totally new organization and a totally new concept. So it's not like we can say, oh, well, we're starting a charity management organization or, oh, we're starting a ranch organization or, oh, we're starting, you know, a job training or whatever. We're sort of this hybrid thing. And so um, that's like a, an eyebrow raiser. And then third, the thing that we're starting is really expensive. <laughs> and so, you know, we kind of show up with people with a business plan and, and it's like, well, we're trying to start something totally new in this sector that's sort of underfunded and hard to break into. And we need $2 million before we can have a single student. So what do you say? <laughs> so there was just this sort of momentum gathering and, and, and coalition building and just kind of bringing people together that, I mean, it's taken a long time, we, you know, we feel to kind of to get it started and bring it together. And I think if this had been five years ago before the, you know, the sort of attention and momentum around justice was happening, I mean, it would have petered out yeah. pretty fast. Yeah. What's another challenge? I think um, reset is interesting because there's so many moving pieces, right? We're 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 connecting with the courts, doing a lot of outreach there. We're trying to build a really great program. There's a lot of community outreach, and um, you know, there's all the fundraising side, all the organizational side of things, and some things end up proving to be harder than you expect. Um, one of them, and this has to do with the fact that we're opening our first campus in the Bay Area, was the property search. And um, because we're new, I mean, we're not, um, one of the things that we often talk about is, is yes, we're expensive, but, but so is, I mean, look at prison. It's crazy expensive right now, how much we're spending. And we don't want to just throw more money at the system. We want to repurpose that money and, and spend it towards better outcomes. Um, and so we're not interested in just, you know, building new buildings or or spending a lot of upfront money that shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't be spent or that can't, you know, we can't just find a way to repurpose something that that's existing. Um, because we're new, it has been, I think it has been a special challenge to find a space where you can basically start a boarding school um, where the community is OK with it. People don't mind having our students in their backyard. There's enough space for them. Um it, you know, it meets the different zoning requirements. We get through the permitting process. Um, and then we can afford it as well. Because we're a new organization, you know, we don't qualify for a lot of loans or other types of financing options that might be available for us in, you know, in a couple of years. And, um, and so that has been a big challenge. I think it would not have been um, – we came to the Bay Area for a number of reasons, mostly government-related. Um and not property related. Turns out there's not a lot of, you know, spare boarding schools near San Francisco. Um, and we've ended up finding some great options um, in the East Bay in, in more of more rural type farm or ranch settings, which has really ended up great and, op- and, and opened up some doors for students. But that, I think, has been a much longer and harder challenge than we expected.
This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. return to our Innovate Under 30 interview with Associate Director of Communications Holly Kamisa and Jan Anderson and Jane Mitchell of the Reset Foundation. What are the major problems you see with the prison system and how is Reset working to address them? Great question. <laughs> lots, of, lots, of, lots of things come to mind. Um, for me, one of the main problems with, with the prison system is that prison environments are so negative. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, I get that people, you know, committed a crime and that's why they're inside most often. Um, But when you look at that pipeline of how they got there, so often there's just the deck is the deck is stacked against them. The deck is really stacked against people that oftentimes end up in prison. And you when you really dissect that process, you see, you know what? It's not as black and white as I may have originally thought. Maybe they didn't just choose to, you know, to hurt somebody and that's why they're in prison. Actually, like, well, their mom was in jail and their their uncle really encouraged them to sell crack from a very young age or whatever it is. And you and you get to know their stories and you realize, like, oh, these are not the you know these are not just bad people. Um, you know, obvi- obviously there is there's some kind of social contract that they've broken, but um, I think. For me, the, the, the two underlying problems are, one, how people are getting shuttled there, just that, that especially these poor communities um, and often color are, are ending up there. And then, two, what's happening when they're there? It's this very negative environment, and they're treated like trash. Um, now, prisons are different, and there are some very you know enlightened, great prison wardens that, that actually have – um, good facilities and, and do a good job, but the ones that I have seen, and, and I would say most often, prison is a place where where um, it's a dehumanizing environment, and people come in and they're told that they're not worth anything, and they're not expected to become anything, and they have to manipulate in order to survive. And and you know, if they want healthcare services or certain medication they might need or whatever it is, they're just people inside a prison are often encouraged to lie in order to survive. And um, so it's like we're taking people from um, environments where where the deck was stacked against them to begin with, and then we're putting them in another environment that is that is just as harsh, if not harsher. Um, they're leaving angry at the system, frustrated at the fact that their life now is just made so much worse, and um, and they have you know nowhere to go. Don't have you know they imagine coming out of prison ten years. You know, going into prison 10 years ago and coming out now, the world is, the, the country is completely different. Um, of course you're gonna go commit another crime and end up there again. I just feel like the, the system is set up for failure. And, um, and we see it happening. There's a lot more I could say, but I think those are probably fun. Oh, and we spend, um, in California $60,000 a year doing it. So, per person. Pouring, 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 pouring money into it. $74 billion every year in the country. And we're getting an F. Like most people go back, 
Most people come out worse than they went in. It's ruining the economy. It's ruining families. And we're and it's like the second fastest growing part of the government budget. It's just, it's like really embarrassing that, yeah. that this is America. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about the Reset Foundation and what it would be like to be somebody on one of those campuses as opposed to being in a more traditional prison? The idea behind a Reset Campus is that instead of sending somebody to prison, to this dehumanizing human um, prison environment, Send them to a campus where everything about the campus is focused on helping them get out of poverty and succeed when they leave. And so they'll come in front of a judge, and the judge has the option to send them to prison or to us, and they come to us. So they never set foot in prison. Um, they come to us, and they live in something that, that looks and feels like much more like a boarding school. Um, hopefully it's there's some outdoor, it's a little more green, um, and, and their entire time that they live with us, a year and a half or two and a half years, um, their entire time is spent in productive ways where they're learning, you know, they're getting ready, they're, they're, they're working on their education, they're getting ready to graduate from high school, get into college, they're getting ready for careers. They have different jobs on campus, they may be, you know, doing some, some, some work on the land or some maintenance, they start doing internships with other corporations, um, all focused on, on getting them both hard and soft skills to be able to succeed and, and have, a, um, have a, a meaningful career once they leave. And then um, the whole environment as well is a, is a really supportive and trusting one where they are given the chance to, 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 to grow and to, to be introspective and um, to build life skills and, and to learn how to live in a, in a healthy and productive way. So they spend their time with us um, one to three years, and then they transition back home, and we help them find a job or get some kind of educational next step, um, and then we maintain contact with them. They can keep coming back to us for classes and, um, and, and keep working with them even after they've transitioned home to make sure that their, that their future is a successful one. How has empathy played a role in forming Reset's approach? of where it started, frankly. Um, I think that that too often um, we, when we don't, it's easy to judge someone whose story we don't know. And I think that oftentimes in the justice system, we don't know the story sometimes of anybody or, or, or we're just, we don't know what's going on. And um, one of the first people that I worked with in jail wrote a beautiful poem um, about herself, and it was entitled A Rose in a Cage. And that image has always stuck with me, that, that she saw herself, and she really was, this incredible woman, um, incredible dreams, and a great mother, like so much potential inside of her, but she, it, she was a rose in a cage. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes we just don't bother to walk inside the cage and see the rose. And um, for me, that's how, that's how my perspective on it changed, and that's how also I became committed to this, was by hearing their stories and realizing um, what a sad state of affairs we have in America. Um, my my first year of, of law school, I was teaching evening classes at, at Rikers Island in New York City, and for one semester, I did a focus group with my with my students. And the whole purpose, the whole premise behind the focus group was let's reimagine what takes what takes place when you get arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if the system were designed, you know, if America were designed to actually, yes, you're still going to be punished for having broken a certain law, but if it were also designed to then help you get back on your feet and help you break this intergenerational cycle of poverty and crime, what would it look like? What would take place? And it was through hearing their voices that, that I think the, the real pillars behind Reset and, and the kind of pillars of what our program looks like now came from. And they had so many suggestions of like, well, what if you, you know, what if you had something more like a boarding school? What if you actually helped us get a real education and didn't just, you know, right now too often education in prison is such a joke. It's like they may have it, but, you know, the guards come in five minutes into class and take three-fourths of the class away because they need to get their medication and then they come back and they've all been you know, overdose so that they'll be, they'll be quiet and you can't, you know, learning, it's not a real learning environment. And so that focus group, I think, had a lot to do with how the model was designed and we've continued to build in those voices, but I feel like it has everything, it has everything to do with it. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the prison system itself and those who are in prison. I think it seems like a part of the issue is also how people who haven't had exposure to the system have these biases against prisoners and people who have been sentenced. So what do you wish to communicate for people who don't really understand prisoners as people? I mean, I heard once that people become beautiful when you know their story. And I feel like um, that has been true for me, that when you get to know people's story, they become beautiful. And I think we have a tendency to, humans in general have a tendency to judge, and it's easy to label entire categories a certain way and, and then to not have to think about it. Um, and what we've done in America is we've, um, we've essentially warehoused entire segments of the U.S. population in these prisons and and then it, it's easy in some ways. I mean, you look at how even even how, uh, you know, the geography of some prisons where you send them 100 miles away, you send them um, really far away, out of sight, out of mind. You don't have to think about it. And you feel like the problem is solved. Um, and to me, that's tragic. That's not American. You know, we talk about Americans life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And right now, we have one in three black men that will end up behind bars. How is that, how is that possible if we really have these American values that, that, you know, this is what America is, that, that, that we believe in these, in these wonderful principles. And yet, for so many people, prison is, they grow up expecting time to spend in prison. Um, and I, I heard about, um, a, a student who had there's there's one gang that has a tattoo of three dots on your thumb and it represents the three places where you can end up in life. Um, one is prison, one is the hospital, and one is the graveyard. And that is those are the three places where people go. And that is their that is their mindset. That is their worldview. And, and to me, that's so tragic because that's not that's not America, you know. Or I should say, that's not the America that that we espouse are cut to be. I think we would like it to be one where there, you know, it's a land of opportunity and promise and hope. And for so many people, that's not the case at all. And it's not because their heart is evil or they're a bad person, but because of the situation they're born into. And they were born into a zip code where the chances that they would go to prison are, you know, 50% in some cases in this country, mm -hmm. um, depending on where you're born. And that is such a sad reality. 
and especially tragic to me, is the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. We, have, we don't have to incarcerate this way. Other countries don't do it this way. We haven't even done this way our whole, our whole history. Mm-hmm. You know, other times in America have looked very different. Um, and, and we've made a choice, and we can make a different choice. And that's what we're trying to do at Reset. How have current events in America shaped the problems with injustice that you address and your approach to them? I mean, I think there's been really a surge in public consciousness around the justice system and around what's happening inside the cages that nobody's looking into. And that has been a sea change, really. And it's been extraordinary. And I think that the... the challenge now is to take advantage of that and to to help it not just be a phase, but to be a movement and to be a permanent change. And so it's been exciting to see, you know, to see more people understand. And most people we talk to now are like, oh, yeah, I, I read this and I get this. And isn't that tragic? And there's sort of now kind of a general agreement where that's that's the thing to say now. Like the thing to say now is, oh, isn't this tragic, regardless of, kind of your background. And, and you start to see it in election campaigning and these sorts of things. So. But I think it's it's our prerogative now to make sure that that's not just a, a one cycle deal, but that it's really like a change in thought and that the last we're shifting what's been happening for 40 years, you know, not just kind of saying our, our tweet that that feels good at the moment. I think, too, one thing that's been exciting for us to see at Reset is people support these changes and things like Reset from across the aisle, um, whereas this and this is not a partisan issue anymore. And you get people involved for different reasons. I think the all the budget crises of the last, you know, five to seven years have actually given a lot more attention to this issue because of all the economic, you know, the economic drain that it is mm-hmm. and um, on our society and the fact that this is something we could really change and and get very different, you know, economic results that sure reads it's expensive, but our return on investment is, you know, seven to one. It's it's. Mm-hmm. It has a massive impact on positive impact on economies versus what the, the current prison system affords. And so I think what's been especially exciting is that it's all walks of life, all different, you know, across the political spectrum. People are really coming, coming to see the need for something different. It's really interesting to hear you talk about sort of how economically inefficient the current prison, prison system is and how reset can really help to address that. I'm wondering if there are any sort of other issues you think reset can help change. Well, I mean, reset is not trying to fix the prison system. We're trying to replace it. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of little problems in terms of the um, the violence that happens, um, the the power dynamic between people that are there and people that are employed there, um, the architecture itself. The you know it doesn't mirror real life at all. So we're not we're not trying to go in and fix each one of those little things. Mm-hmm. It's just a bad package, and so that's why we're doing an alternative, which is that. We don't send people to prison. We don't send people to jail. Like they get to choose to go somewhere else, and it's a totally different environment. Like Jane mentioned, positive and and absent of those um, uh, those elements like violence and the power dynamic and the negative environment that that are causing it to be such a failure right now. I think another way that we're really different, in addition to the the students' experience, um, students' experience looks vastly different than if they had been sent to prison. I think the staff's experience is also completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always sad to me to hear people who work in prisons talk about how they also, uh, one guy I was talking to recently, he's, 
he worked in, in, a, in a jail for 14 years and he said, yes, I served my sentence for 14 years. They also feel, you know, they also feel locked and trapped in a way. And it's just they're such bad jobs. And um, and they're often violent environments that, you know, that they, they may feel threatened themselves or just not a positive workplace environment. I think obviously one thing that we're in addition to changing the experience for for our clients, our students, it's also vastly different for staff. Um, and it's just sad when you, you and, and for the community, too, um, that that works. Our students are going to be doing a lot of service learning for communities and and a bunch of different programs to actually help the different projects to help their neighbors and and, um, you know, figure out ways to address homelessness just a couple blocks away. And, and we really want to be training our students to help to help communities. And so I feel like in addition to the students experience, there's also the staff in the community as well that we're that we're uh, really rethinking, too. Are there particular parts of America in which you see this as an especially problematic and pressing issue, or is it a really blanket nationwide sort of problem? A good question. I think, unfortunately, it is a problem across the country. Mm-hmm. There are definitely pockets and states that do it better than others and that have um, better programs or more humane facilities than others, but this is something you see across across the board. It is especially... Um, I think it is especially pressing to, to me and to our team, I think, for communities that see a lot of over-incarceration. A lot of inner cities, that, that one in three number that I quoted earlier of one in three black men ending up in prison, that gets up to one in two and even higher in some some inner cities. Um, so I would say it's definitely more pressing in, in those types of neighborhoods, um, but tends to be an issue that's a problem across the country. What does the future hold for Reset? Wild success. <laughs> Our vision is really that the justice system becomes, you know, a, a, a fair and effective one. And so, you know, we're starting these first two campuses as really demonstration projects that can work and have great outcomes and be cost effective and change people's lives or help people change their own lives. And then, and we'll build our own network and, and, and teach others to do it, but we really want to be part of this broader change so that in, in 10, 15 years, we can look back and be like, oh, remember how dumb we were, you know, and when the justice system was this way, and are we so glad how enlightened we are now? So that's the broader vision we're working towards. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think I'd just say that we are, one thing that has been neat to see, I think, as as co-founders is is how fun it is to have a team with you and to have other people join on and and not just commit to oh yeah this is a great idea but actually sign up for it and i think we have a really really remarkable team right now in california that has that has built something um pretty phenomenal already and and working to do more and so anytime when it's just two of us on the phone i i sometimes want to you know say like oh but there's a you know, there's a whole great, amazing team behind that. Um, and I think they've given, to me, our staff give me a lot of hope um, for the future because you have some really incredible, talented educators and counselors um, that are committed to this issue and, and committed to really changing um, both the individuals that are sitting in their classroom every morning, but also the system more generally. And they recognize that that happens one novel at a time and one grammar lesson at a time. Um, and, and it's that hard daily work that, that 
ends up helping people get jobs and get to college. Um, but it's, it's, um, you know, Jen, Jen and I sometimes joke that, um, as entrepreneurs, we're not just starting an iPhone app. We're a little bit more complicated and a little more expensive than an iPhone app. And what I've really found is that oftentimes the most needed, um, service and the most, the most needed attention is the day in, day out stuff that, that, uh, you know, isn't always sexy, doesn't get a lot of, doesn't get a lot of praise. It's that, it's that really, um, daily almost grind um but but that that consistent effort that's made all the time and i feel like for really trying to to get people out of poverty an iphone app is not enough mm-hmm. um and if you want to get entire families and generations out of the cycle you've got to do more than than some small band-aid program it's got to be something significant and that's why we have guys for up to 3 years and and they've got a whole team of educators supporting them. And yes, there's a lot of resources, but that's what it, that's what it takes. And um, those resources are already out there. Let's just repurpose them and get completely different outcomes, so that we really have an America that that fits much more like the vision of what we want our country to be. Well, Jen and Jane, thank you so much for being our guests. Absolutely. The best way to reach Jen and Jane and to support the Reset Foundation's work is through theresetfoundation.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.